you into something that's, that's greater than just fishermen. I will instead make you fishers of men. And so he designates 12 of his disciples, and he makes them apostles. He gives them authority to drive out demons and to heal, and he sends them out. And he sends them out to go out over all Galilee and to preach the good news and to essentially be his mouthpiece that will usher in the souls of men into the kingdom of God. That's their mission. That's what they were always meant to do. And on the other end of the story of John the Baptist, we have the beginning of our passage today. In verse 30, we see the return of the apostles back to Jesus after they had completed this mission and they report to Jesus all that they had done and all that they had taught. And now we know from verses 13 through 15 of Mark 6 that the preaching and the miracles that were done by the apostles, it started to create this buzz, right? This buzz all throughout Galilee that began to surround Jesus and the name of Jesus spread like wildfire. And the news of his miracles and of his preaching and what, the, what the, even the apostles were able to do and perform was known far and wide. And because of this, we read in verse 31 that they were being just constantly, constantly bombarded by people coming and going. So much so that they didn't even have a moment to, to kind of just catch their breath. They didn't even have a moment to, to get a quick bite to eat. They were just constantly busy. And this really, friends, should not come as much of a surprise to us. Because as the gospel spreads, lives are inevitably touched. They're inevitably moved in ways that, that often don't make sense to the natural world, right? And so when the people saw this, when they saw the effects of the gospel, they began to have questions about Jesus. They began to, to wonder who he was and, and what he even came to do. And so Jesus, noticing and understanding the utter exhaustion of his apostles, they came back exhausted. He beckons them to join him in a boat to find a, a nice quiet spot where they can all get some, some very much needed rest. And verses 31 through 32 says, And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. So you see here Jesus and the disciples hopping into their boat and traveling probably just along the coast until they found what they thought would be a good place to, to just recharge their batteries. But as we enter into verse 33, we see that their hopes and dreams of finding a little bit of rest quickly collapses in around them. Verse 33 tells us, Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And so remember, at this point, Jesus and his disciples are somewhat minor celebrities, and when the people in the surrounding towns and villages saw them depart, and, and they could kind of tell where they were headed, they, they sprinted as fast as they possibly could in order to beat Jesus and his disciples to their destination. 
And when the boat reached the shore, Jesus and his disciples just quickly realized that rest was no longer on the table. It was no longer an option. It wasn't going to happen. Because they were met with the crowd of thousands. Of thousands. If we skip ahead a little to verse 44, we see that there were at the very least 5,000 men. 5,000 men. And if you include women and children in on that number who were probably there with the men, it could have reached upwards to 15,000 people. Some, some larger estimates of that some commentators say, could, they say that it could reach all the way up to 20,000 people. So there's this massive, massive crowd around Jesus. And, and now I want you to imagine just for a moment that you are in the place of Jesus in this scenario. Now try, try to place your Place yourself in his sandals for a, moment, for a minute. He and his disciples are exhausted. They're exhausted from, from difficult and long days of ministry with, with little to no rest. And not only that, but if you remember from last week, Jesus has also just learned that his cousin, that John the Baptist, a, a giant of the faith, one sent by God to prepare the way of the Lord was just beheaded by the tyrannical Herod Agrippa and his vengeful, nasty wife Herodias. And in the exhaustion and grief, he and his closest disciples are, are just, they're just wanting just a minute. They're just wanting a moment of rest. But, it, but it's immediately taken away from them by this unsought-after crowd. And friends, I don't know about you, but, but for, for me, I know that I would be more than just a little bit angry. All of my pent-up, introverted rage would have been bubbling to the surface at this point. But here's where we see the wonderful, amazing nature of Jesus shine forth. Verse 34 says this, When he went ashore... He saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. You see, Jesus does not look upon these people as simple intrusions on his plan to rest with his apostles. It's not how he sees them, but instead, when he looked upon them, he revealed his true nature. He revealed his true character of his heart. He had compassion on them. In fact, the, uh, the word used for compassion in verse 34 is the Greek word splonknizomai. That's a good one, right? Splonknizomai. It's a hard one to say, but it's also kind of fun if you get it down. Splonknizomai. Now, the feeling of this word, the feeling of it, is to be moved inwardly by compassion. That you, that you feel it from your gut, right? You feel it in your heart. From the, from the very depths of your being, you are moved by deep, deep compassion for someone. And this is what Jesus felt for the crowds that now surrounded He and His apostles. The crowds that interrupted their planned retreat and rest for mourning. He felt, he felt nothing, friends, but the deepest compassion. Wow. But the question then comes, why? Why? Why was he so moved to such a great compassion for these people? 
Well, we read the answer to that, to that in verse 34. Because when he looked at them, he didn't see them as just people. He looked at them like sheep without a shepherd. With sheep as, as sheep without a shepherd. And as many commentators point out, that picture is actually found again and again and again in the Bible. It is the imagery often used for the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. They were often described as shepherdless sheep, constantly lost, constantly wandering away. And so Jesus, in his great compassion, he came to be the great shepherd of his sheep. As one theologian says, he is the one who embodies the shepherd, who goes out looking for the lost sheep. Jesus was the fulfillment of David, who was the great shepherd boy of Israel, pointing forward to a shepherd who would ultimately come, who would gather the sheep into his fold. Jesus is the shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. And he is the great shepherd prophesied to come in Ezekiel 34. And so, brothers and sisters, it really should be no surprise to us that Jesus sees this crowd with the eyes and the heart of a shepherd. How different, how so vastly different does he see people in this world than we so often do, right? When you drive down Main Street, and you see people going in and out of shops. When you, when you go to work and you look around and you see all of your co-workers around you. And you or when you, when you walk into Walmart on a crowded day and all the people are just, are just jam-packed all throughout the aisles. What, what do you see? What is it that you see when you look on them? How, how do you see them? And I can't answer that for you. But we can, answer of, we can answer about how Jesus sees them. He sees them with compassion. He sees them as sheep who were without a shepherd. Sheep who are lost, who are aimless, who are with no true direction in their life. How do you see them? And so when Jesus sees this crowd and he looks at them, with this, with a shepherd's heart, what does he do? What does he do? He immediately begins to move to take care of them. Look at verse 34. And when you look at verse 34, I really want you to pay attention to the last line. It says, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. He began to teach them many things. Isn't it interesting that the first course of action for Jesus when looking upon this crowd of lost sheep was, was of, of all things, to, to, to teach them? It was to teach them? Why is that, or sorry, why, why is it that he would choose to teach them of, of all things, of all of the things in the world that he could do for these people? His first course of action was to teach. It was to teach. And Christians, these are, these are just common folk. There's just common people who are surrounding Jesus right now. These are people who are oppressed under Roman occupation. These are people who have real issues that they're dealing with. 
Some in this crowd may be suffering estrangement from their children. Some may have sick and dying relatives in their homes. Others may be suffering crippling depression because they are a victim of widespread poverty that was, that was rampant in this region. Some of these people are dealing with social anxiety or, or feeling like they don't belong anywhere. They're feeling unloved by their spouse or their families or maybe they're, maybe they're sick and disease-ridden like the bleeding woman in chapter 5. And Jesus' answer in this moment to all of that is to teach them? He decides to care for them by teaching them? Maybe you're sitting here this morning and going through or experiencing some of those similar things or some of those same things. Or maybe you have some other emotional or spiritual scar that runs deep. Or maybe there's something else that I didn't mention that you are going through and you're wondering to yourself, how in the world can, can Jesus heal me? How can, how can He fix me and care for me? I'm feeling lost. I'm feeling hurt. I'm feeling broken. But friends, as, as unlikely as it seems, the answer lies in what Jesus first does for this crowd surrounding Him. But again, you may think to yourself, how could the teachings of Jesus, how could he, hearing His teachings be preached possibly make any sort of difference in what I am going through right now? But friends, when Jesus began to teach them, notice that He did not just teach them one thing. He didn't just teach them one thing. But verse 34 says that He began to teach them a great many things. He begins to teach them that He is the one who can cleanse the leper spots. He teaches them that He is the one who can make the unclean clean. He teaches them that He is the one who opens the eyes of the blind. He is the one who, who sets the captive free. He is the one who makes the very gates of hell tremble. And He teaches them that He is the one who can wash away the, of every, the stain of every sin. That He is the one through whom there is eternal life. He teaches them that there is, there is hope. There's hope for that withering sick body of yours when He raises it up in glory on that last day. He is the one who offers wholeness to the broken. He teaches them of the deepest, most significant sense of true belonging as He teaches them of the kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters, I, I, I hope you see this. That this entire passage that we're looking at today from, from, from beginning to end is all about Jesus feeding His sheep. It's, it's, it's always there in this passage. He's always feeding them. But we can often make the mistake in thinking that the, that the only feeding comes in verses 38, or sorry, 34 through 38. But no, no. You have to see that He was feeding this crowd from the very beginning. From the very beginning. The only difference is that here, Jesus is feeding them bread that can never spoil and does far more than nourish the body. It nourishes the soul. 
And we'll speak more on that shortly. But friends, don't you, don't you see? Don't you see? That is why Jesus' first act, his first action in caring for this multitude was to teach. It was to teach. And as Jesus is teaching, it begins to grow late. And in verse 35 and 36, we see that the disciples decide to take it upon themselves to approach Jesus and, and tell him this, as if he didn't already know. And they remind him that they are in a desolate place. They're essentially in a wilderness. And then you see that they actually have the audacity to give Jesus a command. They give Jesus a command. His disciples try to command Jesus. They tell him that he should send the crowd away to find for themselves something to eat. Well, here we get to the response of Jesus that we spoke of at the beginning of the sermon. If you look in verse 37, you'll find Jesus' response to the disciples. It's a wonderful response. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. I think that's amazing. How, how great of a response is that? Now, to, to get serious again just for one moment, R.C. Sproul clued me in on a somewhat complicated theological phrase that is used to describe their reaction here. And, you, and I, I would recommend that you, you take a note because it's a, a pretty important phrase in Christian theology. It's one that you will probably see come up often as you're reading theology books and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but Sproul says that the disciples, and, and here it is, the disciples' flabber was gasted. Catch that? Let me say it one more time. He says that the disciples' flabber was gasted. They were flabbergasted. They were completely flabbergasted. They could not believe what they just heard come out of the Lord's mouth. They couldn't believe it. You want, you want us to feed all of, all of these people? These fifteen to 20,000 people? Jesus, have you, have you lost your mind? And we learn from John's account of this event that it is the Apostle Philip that points out it would take nearly an entire wage to get enough bread to feed this immense crowd. It's more specifically, eight months' worth of finances in order to feed this crowd. And even then, it probably still wouldn't be enough. We don't have that kind of money, Jesus. How are we supposed to feed these people when we have nothing? We've got nothing. Well, Jesus continues in verse 38, and he doesn't back down, and he asks them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And friends, 2,000 years later, we can still physically feel the eye rolls of the disciples. But they obey. They obey Jesus, and they go out, and we learn again from the Gospel of John that they find a boy who is carrying with him five loaves of bread and two fish. And they bring it back to Jesus, still knowing that there was no way this amount of food could ever feed 5,000 plus people. No way. It's impossible. Andrew, in John's account, even says to Jesus, when, when they are bringing him the five loaves, see, Andrew's the one that offers it to Jesus and says, what, what are they among so many? What, what use is this among so many? Might as well be a <clears throat> handful of air that I'm carrying right now. What are they among so many? 
And the answer to that, of course, is in the hands of men, absolutely not. Absolutely not. But in the hands of Jesus, we see in verse 39 and following that in his hands, who can take the most meager of offerings and multiply them to meet the needs of his will, is more than sufficient. It's more than sufficient. Beginning in verse 39. <clears throat> says, Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces of fish, or sorry, broken, of the broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. Five thousand men. And so we see the miracle unfold. And Jesus begins to break pieces off of the bread and off of the fish, but he never runs out. He never runs out. More bread keeps breaking off the loaves. More meat keeps coming off of the fish. So much food is produced that not only did everyone in the crowd just get a, a little something to eat, but all of them were completely satisfied. Completely satisfied. Every stomach was completely filled. It wasn't like Jesus just provided a little snack for them. He provided an entire feast and in the hands of Jesus, this meager offering was more than enough to meet the need. Now, if you remember, last week we said that the miracles of Jesus were always meant as a sign. Always. The miracles of Jesus always served a greater purpose than what the immediate result of the miracle was. Let me say that, let me say that one more time. The miracles of Jesus always served as a greater, or sorry, served a greater purpose than what the immediate result of the miracle was. Always. When Jesus cleanses the leper and makes him well, he wasn't just fixing the ailment of this man, though he did, and he, and he cared about doing so, but he cleansed the leper as a sign to show that through faith in Christ, there is an inward cleansing of our dirty hearts. It was a sign. Jesus was doing more than saving the reputation of the bride and groom when he turned that dirty, polluted water into wine, though he did care for the bride and groom. But he was showing that he can take care of, or say he can take even the filthiest sinner. He can take even the filthiest sinner and turn them into something that is sweet and precious to God. It was a sign. When Jesus opened the eyes of the blind, he wasn't just showing his compassion for those who are in physical need, though, though he was. He was. But he was truly showing how the heart of, of men is blind to the truths of God. But he has come to open our eyes so that we can fully see the glory of God for the first time. It was a sign. The miracles of Jesus never stopped at their outward results. They always pointed to a deeper spiritual promise. To a deeper spiritual promise. And if you flip back to John's account of this miracle in chapter 6, verse 14, you see that John says, when people saw what? When they saw what? 
the sign. When people saw the sign that Jesus had done, this, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is coming into the world. And you notice something. John does not say when they saw the miracle. John says when they saw the sign. When they saw the sign. As with all miracles of Jesus, this miracle too served as a sign. This miracle that Jesus performed here was not just about Jesus feeding hungry people. It was one big, massive sign. But, of course, all signs have something they're pointing to, do they not? And so that brings up the obvious question. What is this sign of Jesus feeding the 5,000 pointing to? What's it, what's it pointing to? Well, I believe there are three answers to that question. First, if you do a deep dive into a variety of commentaries on this passage, you'll, you'll notice something. You'll quickly see that they all have a unified voice saying that as Jesus is multiplying the loaves and fish, a particular section of the Old Testament would have begun to take form in the minds of the Jewish crowd. And we've already touched on this just slightly a few minutes ago, uh, but here Jesus is actually identifying himself with the God of Israel, who provided manna to the people of Israel as they wandered the, uh, wandered the wilderness after their grand exodus from Egypt. Man, that's uh, harder to say than I thought it was going to be. Wander the wilderness, exodus, Egypt. All right, got through it. But he is the shepherd that provides. He's the shepherd that provides. That's what he's showing you here. He is showing himself as identified as the very one the psalmist is speaking of in Psalm 23. Did you, ever, did you ever realize that when you're reading through Psalm 23, one of the most famous psalms in all of Scripture? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. That's, friends, that's Jesus. That's Jesus. That's who that psalmist is, is speaking about. And for those in the crowd who may have once been blind to spiritual truths, but could, but could possibly now see, it now became apparent to them that Jesus was the true shepherd of Israel who has come to be the provision of his sheep and to gather them into his arms. Now the next thing this miraculous sign points to is usually the, one of the more obvious ones or one of the more popular ones as we read through this story. And it is that God takes impossible situations. He takes impossible situations with unbelievably limited resources, and He multiplies them for the well-being of others and for the glory of His name. Alistair Begg has a wonderful article on this, and he uses the example that, that maybe you're at a family reunion, and you are the only believer there, and for that reason, you've been just, just dreading going to this family reunion. You don't want to go. You are dreading it because you feel yourself identify with the Apostle Andrew, who, if you remember, took up the measly bread and fish to Jesus and said, what, what is this among so many? What is this among so many? And then you say, who, who am I? Who am I among so many? Who am I among such unbelief? What can I say? What could, what could I possibly do? 
But Christian, this sign of Jesus is pointing to God, being able to take your life and multiply it for the glory of His name. You may not think it much, but simply look at this miracle of what Jesus did with just five simple loaves of bread and two small fish, and you have a sign pointing to what Jesus can do with your life. In this same article, Beck tells a story of a woman named Gladys Aylward. Gladys was a servant girl in the east end of London in the early 1900s, and she had, she had no education, she had no savings, and the only thing to her name was a small brown suitcase and a, a passionate longing to go to China with the good news of the gospel. However, when she went to the missionary society, they denied her help and they denied her any sort of funding. And in a memoir, she said that she got down by her bed on her knees in her unfinished room that she was renting, and she said, Lord Jesus Christ, even if those men don't understand, I understand. I know that you want me to go to China for you. And this, this tiny woman with long, straight black hair began a journey by train then by ocean liner, and she eventually ended up in Shanghai. And as she stood on the deck and looked out on the city, and she saw all of these Chinese people with their jet black straight hair and these tiny children, she suddenly realized that God had a plan, that God had a plan and a purpose for her, that he had even established her DNA in such a way that she would be perfectly suited to be just that little woman who reached those tiny children's lives because she offered her life up to God and he multiplied it for his glory. Now, brothers and sisters, as Beck says, do not, do not be too quick to assume that God is unable to do with you what he intends to do with you. Hmm. So, offer your life to Him. As small and meager as you may think it is. And watch Him multiply it for His glory. Now, lastly, the sign of the bread and fish is meant to point you not to Jesus simply providing for your natural bread that can only satisfy your body, but to the bread of life that can satisfy your soul. Again, taking a look at this account in the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verse 15 says, Perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. You see, these people in the crowd, they didn't see Jesus as precious and to be adored. They saw, his, they saw his gifts as precious and to be adored. And they thought, oh, what a, what a useful king he will be for us. Right? Let's, let's have Jesus be our king. He will keep our bellies full. Let's make him king. And a little further down in verses 22 through 25 of John 6, we learn that the next day some of the crowd was, was still kind of lingering around where Jesus had been feeding them. And they weren't sure where Jesus had went, so they, they began to kind of scatter and, and hurriedly look for him. 
And they finally locate him near Capernaum, and they ask him in verse 25, Rabbi, when did, when did you come here? When did, you, when did you get here? We've been looking for you. Now look at Jesus' response in verse 26. He says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, not because you understood what, what me feeding you was meant to point to, but simply because you ate your fill of the loaves. And here's where he reveals the ultimate purpose of this miracle. Do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God set his seal, his approval. And he continues in verse 35, and he says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. That, my friends, is the whole point of this miracle. Right there. That's the point. That's the main theme. That's the main reason why God fed those 5,000 people. This is what that sign was pointing to. It was pointing to the bread of life. So what is, what is Jesus saying here? He's telling the crowd standing around him that so far you've been, you've been focused on the food that I provided for you that can only satisfy the hunger of your flesh. So far you've only been focused on your immediate hunger and desires being met. You've been chasing after the bread that can only satisfy your bellies for just a moment. You have contented yourself with a lesser satisfaction but I have come to be the bread. I've come to be the bread that can satisfy your soul forever. Feast on me. Feast on my word and be filled. Natural bread can only sustain you for so long, but I can sustain you for eternity. Seek after the greater satisfaction that lies in me. And so, friends, we need to ask ourselves, we need to ask ourselves, what sort of nourishment, what sort of satisfaction are we seeking after? Are we settling for a lesser satisfaction in our lives? Are we feasting on the bread of this world, those, those fleeting pleasures of this momentary life that are just, they're just empty calories? Of no true substance? that will soon leave us feeling empty in the end? Or are we feasting on the bread of life? Are we taking in the nourishment that comes from His teaching that will lead us to the highest satisfaction that can only be found in Him? Why are you seeking after Jesus this morning? Why? Why is it? To just fill your bellies here and now? or to seek after the good food, the good food that will keep you filled forever. As I come to a close, did you know that the uh, job description for a pastor is fairly short? It's not, not, not super long. Second Timothy, Titus 1, 1 Peter 5, all those clearly lay out for us that the pastor or the elder is to lead first and foremost through the preaching and teaching of the Word. 
And this, this actually kind of sort of goes against the grain of modern church's understanding of, of what a pastor is and, and should be. The modern church often believes that the purpose of a pastor is to be a, a town leader, to enact these great social changes within a city. Or they think a pastor or elder should be a social club manager or even a social worker. And this is often what we think, or the reason for that, is because we often think that's what society and that's what people truly need in large, right? The world would be so much better of a place if there were more people trying to do housing projects in their communities. Or, or opening up soup kitchens. Or to uh, create more programs for every demographic your church might have. And, and friends, none of those things are, are bad. They're not, they're not bad. In fact, they can be very good and godly things. But we see Jesus' primary concern lie elsewhere. Not that he doesn't care about those things, because he absolutely does. But after the resurrection, after the resurrection of Jesus, and he speaks to Peter, and he asks Peter three times, Peter, do you love me? And each time Peter answers in the affirmative saying, yes, Jesus, I love you. Yes, Jesus, I love you. Yes, Jesus, you know that I love you. But what does Jesus tell Peter to do after each time? Peter, do you love me? Yes, Jesus, I love you. Then feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Jesus, I love you. Then tend to my flock. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Then Peter, feed my lambs. Feed my lambs. Jesus does not want him to feed his sheep with, with bread that can perish. He wants him to feed his flock, feed his sheep with the bread of life. And likewise, mine and Paul's primary responsibility before all else in this church is to feed Jesus' sheep. That's our, that's our main purpose. That's why we exist. And though we feed you now through the preaching and teaching of the Word and through the enabling of the Holy Spirit, friends, in what will seem like a blink of an eye, a day is soon coming where you will join Jesus You'll join Jesus at the great wedding feast described to us in Revelation 19, and He will feed you Himself. He'll feed you Himself from His very own table. How amazing is that? Now we'll end with this great promise of Jesus that He gives to all those who place their faith in Him. It's found in John 6, 35 through 40. I think I got the wrong slide up there, actually. Just listen, uh, listen along. It says, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, friends, he will never cast out. Whoever goes to him, he will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Friends, that is you. That is your future resurrection. If you place your faith in Christ, this is talking about you. For this is the will of my Father 
that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him shall have or should have eternal life. I will raise Him up on the last day. How good is our shepherd? How good is our shepherd? Let's listen to His voice. Let's follow after Him. Though our lives may be meager and weak, let's offer it up to Him and watch Him multiply. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank you for sending your Son to be the great shepherd that laid down his life for his sheep. Lord Jesus, we, we, we thank you for being the bread of life from which we gain nourishment for our souls. And Lord, we, we look forward to the day so much when we join you at your table at that great wedding feast. And Lord, we, we pray that until then, let us not be satisfied by lesser bread. I pray this in your son's name.